wages paid to all the employees, and all the payments made to all the suppliers, and all the good, decent lives supported by this economic activity. Yes, capitalism draws energy from base motives, and in the acrasia industries it does so in especially unlovely ways, but capitalism also practices alchemy, transforming what is base into something useful or even lofty, with bad productivity growth, both aspects of capitalism are on display. And what about ugly productivity growth? Here we're talking about innovations that show up in the GDP statistics and which make their customers unambiguously better off but which also inflict harms on third parties along the way, I see. Three distinct sources of ugly productivity, industries that pollute industries, that mistreat animals, and industries that mistreat their workers. The dark side of these industries cannot obscure the fact that they have played a central role in modern economic growth. We could never have gotten rich without lots of ugly productivity growth, but since we have become rich, it has made sense for us to focus regulatory efforts on reducing capitalism's collateral damage. And as we set our sights on higher levels of technological and social development, we can aspire to big reductions in ugly productivity growth as we shift economic activity to cleaner and more humane industries. There's no way to think sensibly about the trade-offs posed by ugly productivity growth unless you place them in historical context. In the early days of industrialization, when mass poverty was still the norm, it was inevitable that rapid progress and ugly side effects went hand in hand. Yes, factories pumped toxic filth into the air and water, but life expectancy was in the process of doubling. Yes, working conditions in those factories were dangerous and brutal, but immigrants flocked to America's shores for a chance to work in them. From our contemporary standpoint, the trade-offs look very different, but they still exist. Fossil fuels powered humanity's escape from mass poverty. I, for one, am deeply grateful for this state of affairs, and I have no patience with condemnations of that escape for having been so messy. Condemnations invariably issued by people cosseted with every modern comfort and convenience. That said, fossil fuels are not capable of sustaining our prosperity over the long term. They are changing the composition of our atmosphere and consequently our climate. So securing and expanding human flourishing requires that we move to new clean energy sources. Meanwhile, completing the clean energy transition successfully will require us to navigate a host of other environmental risks and trade-offs, dealing with the toxic waste created by producing solar panels and the impingement on habitats by large solar arrays, minimizing the risk of earthquakes caused by advanced geothermal, coping with the environmental impacts of lithium-ion batteries, and managing the safe operation of nuclear plants and the handling and storage of nuclear waste. In 1970, when I was a little boy, world population totaled 3.7 billion people, and some 35% of them were undernourished. Today, the population has more than doubled to over 8 billion, and the share of the undernourished now stands below 10%. This is a magnificent accomplishment, one that the conventional wisdom of my boyhood said was flatly impossible. Indeed, obesity worldwide has tripled since the mid-1970s, and more people today are obese than undernourished. As circumstances have changed, we can now afford to look at our food systems in a new light, and if we can resist turning our gaze from the stomach-turning sight, we will be confronted by the appalling ugliness of factory farming, 
I'm not a vegetarian. I don't feel the faintest ripple of guilt over the fact that human beings are omnivores, but I don't see how anyone can seriously argue that the industrial scale, systematic cruelty meted out to living creatures every day is anything less than morally horrific not to mention factory farmings. Sprawling global footprint, agriculture now consumes half the world's habitable land and three-quarters of that is for livestock and the mass extinctions. Being driven by habitat loss, or how jamming together humans and domesticated animals in close proximity combined with globalized travel patterns renders future pandemics all but inevitable. It's clear enough, I think, that further boosting agricultural productivity through ever more diabolical forms of animal torture does not constitute progress in human flourishing. On the contrary, we need to continue to expand regulation of livestock production to limit the worst abuses, and we should avidly pursue the good productivity growth of more delicious and less costly cultivated meat. I doubt any Americans my age or younger can really wrap their minds around how brutal and exhausting working conditions used to be. Consider the fact that in 1913, when Henry Ford first instituted the moving assembly line, he had to hire over 52,000 men just to maintain a workforce of 14,000. In other words, the typical worker lasted barely three months before walking off the job. And keep in mind that the typical auto worker in 1914 could hardly afford to be too choosy. Ford solved the turnover problem by instituting a whopping pay hike to $5 a day in 1914, a dramatic illustration of the fact that rising living standards for industrial workers in part reflected combat pay for enduring torches conditions. Over a half-century later, things were much better than they had been back in the Model T days, but they were still pretty terrible. Here's a reminiscence from someone who started work at General Motors in 1976. Greater than the next day I went in after school and worked 10 hours. I thought I had gone greater than to hell. I couldn't believe what people were doing for money. I couldn't greater than believe how hard it was, but I thought of myself as a tough guy and I was greater than determined to stick it out. So it's fair to say that virtually all workers today have a much easier time of it than did their parents or grandparents, but that's how it should be, since we spend something like half our waking lives at work or at least we did before. The recent spike in working from home, improved working conditions are an important component of overall rising living standards, and therefore, for anyone who cares about human flourishing, it ought to be genuinely dismaying that new digital monitoring tools are making working life decidedly worse for a growing number of employees. It's now possible to keep tabs on what websites employees are viewing, how fast they're typing, how much time they spend on calls with customers, and the time between calls the emails they're sending and receiving when they go to the bathroom and how long they stay there where they are now and where all they've gone over the course of the day needless to say all this snooping ramps up workplace stress and reduces job satisfaction dot there are two basic ways to make workers more productive one give them new tools or processes that amplify their skills and allow them to produce more with the same effort or two sweat them i.e push them to work harder and faster for workers in advanced economies now well into the 21st century, it's hard to see a good argument for continued reliance on, too, as an avenue for future productivity growth, whatever minor efficiencies are gained, and whatever pennies are shaved off the prices of goods and services as a result. These paltry gains cannot under present circumstances justify the intentional infliction of emotional and physical distress. To continue making progress toward a world of mass flourishing, productivity, growth remains indispensable, 
but we have to be discriminating. We're not rich. Enough that we can give in entirely to loss aversion and safety ISM. That way, lies stagnation and sooner or later catastrophe. But we are rich enough that the gaps between what is good for GDP and what is good for human well-being have grown large enough to take notice of. We're rich enough that some forms of productivity growth are no longer worth the candle. Rapid gains in artificial intelligence and increasing hype about the imminent arrival of superhuman artificial general intelligence will surely put our powers of discrimination to the test. Boosters tell of a coming millennium of good productivity growth, while doomsters warn of bad productivity growth that could end the entire human race. Meanwhile, the potential for all manner of AI-aided surveillance and manipulation ensures that there will be plenty of ugly side effects to worry about. We cannot know yet how things will shake out and what the actual trade-offs will look like, but we should know enough to dispense. With false easy extremes, both the end is nigh and what me worry. As usual, reality is going to be frustratingly complicated.